0: There's something about praise that rhymes with gratitude, that finds its, its source and foundation in gratitude, something that, that ties our, our wonder and our awe of the king of the universe into our thankful hearts, and we are thankful that he calls us his, that, that, that we can call him ours. This is why we pour out our praise, not just because he is worthy, but because he is worthy to us. He has made us family. He has made us His, and we have made Him ours. And so we pour out our praise to our King, to our Savior, to our our Father, the God who keeps us, the God who saved us, the God who made us into family. Amen? Let me ask you to sit as we continue to pour out our praise this morning, as we continue to express our gratitude to God. I want to encourage you to continue to worship the Lord through giving. We have this moment in the middle of our services to, to encourage you and remind you about the discipleship practice that is giving because it's part of our worship. The scriptures tell us in Psalm 96 to, to come into the courts of the Lord, to, to worship, to sing, to declare that he is truly the king. And one of the ways that we declare that is by bringing our offering to him. That's one of the ways that Psalm 96 actually ties in our worship, knowing that we give to God and to his work through his church as an act of worship, but also as a declaration of our allegiance, our allegiance to the one true king, not to some organization, but to the the king of the universe and to the family that he has created, the family that he invites everyone into by faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we continue in worship, I want to continue to invite you to declare your allegiance to that true king. You can do that here through giving at the boxes in the back or online. But I want you to consider today how the Lord is calling you, not just to obedience, but to to allegiance as his disciple, to give as a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus, a kingdom that crosses borders, that calls anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus a citizen, regardless of where you were born, what language you speak, or what city you call home. Give like a citizen of that kingdom that declares our allegiance to Jesus. Because even as I think about it, we have Easter coming in three Sundays, which is kind of crazy to think about. But Easter is this reflection of that allegiance. Our king has not just died for us. He has come back to life for us. He has resurrected. And that is what we celebrate as we anticipate Easter. If you've been with us for a while, we've been praying in anticipation of Easter through this season of Lent for for friends and family members, for neighbors and coworkers that don't know Jesus, that the Lord might draw them to him. And so I want to take a moment to continue that prayer, the prayers that you've been praying throughout the week, as we pray together this morning. But before we do that, you might have noticed when you walked in that there were these uh, Easter cards on your seat. Now, one of the the ways that we want to come alongside you is not just asking you to pray for people that that need to know Jesus, but but to help you invite people. Um, And so those cards are actually on the other flip side, they're postcards. And so I want you to prayerfully consider whether even now as we're praying, you can write it out or throughout this week, who you might want to invite to an Easter service. Not because we just need people to fill seats, but because we want people to come to know Jesus and Easter is a a beautiful way to remind people of the resurrection, that Jesus died and came back to life for them. And so you can write their names, you can write their address, if you want, we'll mail them for you. We actually can drop them off at the welcome desk and we'll send them out Um, or you can send them yourself. You can buy the postage, you can hand deliver them if you want. You can drop them off at gyms or coffee shops, whatever, however the Lord leads you, because the goal is not just to get people into the room. The goal is to get people to know Jesus. Amen? So let's pray together that the Lord might draw more and more people to know him, and let's pray as we approach his word this morning. King of the universe, your word reminds us in Titus 2.11 that your grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And Lord, this morning, we are so grateful for that grace. We praise you for the glory of your grace that really and truly appeared in person thousands of years ago in the the middle of a Middle Eastern country. We are in awe at the grace of Jesus, his perfect holiness and kindness and wisdom and power, the God-man who your word describes as the radiance of your glory and the exact imprint of your character. It is from the grace of this perfect one that we have received grace upon grace upon grace. And like the old song says, this grace is amazing. It saves wretches. It brings lost children home. It opens blind eyes. It, it both teaches us to fear and relieves our fears at the same time. And this morning, we do not forget that this grace costs you more than we could ever imagine. From the humble birth of the king of the universe to the refugee status you had to endure the first few years of your life. And then 30 years where where you as the creator of everything had to grow and learn like every human ever. From having to endure the pain of temptation to the pain of grief and sorrow to the pain of suffering on a cross and experiencing something you've never experienced before, death. From death to tomb to resurrection you won our salvation you overcame every single obstacle to eternal life for all of us who believe and we are eternally grateful we thank you that this grace that has appeared also brings salvation for all people rich and poor strong and weak influential and unknown No matter our our skin color or language or age or gender, this salvation is for anyone who recognizes that this is your world and that they have not honored you as you deserve and everyone who turns to Jesus in belief and repentance. We pray together this morning that you would not only remind us of this grace but that you would use us to communicate this grace to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors, to our co-workers. Would you save them like you have saved us? Lord, we see in your word that this same grace is what your spirit uses to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. And we thank you because your grace not only teaches us but disciples us to say no to the ways that sin has twisted our thinking and our desires. Help us, Lord, to see that without you we are without hope, we are powerless, we are poor. Help us to come to you for forgiveness and new life to desire your glory more than nice toys or nice children or nice jobs or nice lives. Help us to live lives that make people wonder why we don't live for comfort, success, or self-esteem. It is your grace that trains us to wait for what your word promises, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we all hope for someone, for something, but you hold out a blessed hope a happy hope, a lasting hope, a never-ending hope, the appearing of Jesus Christ. And we know that only you, Jesus, can heal the deep brokenness of our world and our hearts. Only you, Jesus, can, can bring true justice and satisfy the deepest longings and remove the curse of sin and suffering. And only you, Jesus, can make all things new. And so we, we acknowledge this morning, we cry out that we need you more than the air that we breathe, Lord Jesus. Help us to live like it. We know we're not home yet. Today we groan in pain looking forward to when you will wipe away every tear. Tomorrow we start another week. Some of us wrestling with bad health or frustrating jobs or unruly emotions or old temptations. Would you have mercy on us, Lord? Holy Spirit, would you help us fix our eyes on Jesus today and tomorrow? Help us draw on your grace moment by moment. And Lord, as we approach your word, would you... Use the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts in this moment that they might be an acceptable, a pleasing, a beautiful act of worship before your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, kids, you are now dismissed to your classrooms. There is a big sign in the back. Um, We are so grateful for the chance to worship with you. Thank you for uh, raising the octave level in here as we were singing together. We appreciate it. As the kids head out, I want to do something that I should have done at the very beginning. I want to introduce myself uh, to those of you who don't know me. My name is Eric Solomon, and I serve as the pastor of this congregation here. And if you're new, you may not know that we are a a congregation of Wheaton Bible Church alongside our West Chicago and Iglesia de Pueblo congregations. And if you are new, I also want you to know that we're really, really grateful that we get the chance to worship with you this morning. We're grateful that the Lord brought you into this place with with, with us. I pray that you would find this place to be a warm and welcoming place, a, a beacon of hope for the life that Jesus died for all of us to have. That you would see us as broken people that are in the middle of being repaired by Jesus and that Jesus offers that repair to all of us. Amen? Well, this morning... We are in the second to last sermon of our Gospel Culture series. This is week 11 of 12 before we get into Holy Week. And and we've been studying the Scriptures to look at what makes a church a biblical church. What does every church need to have in order to be faithful to God's calling, to to be fruitful in God's kingdom? And we started our series with the supremacy of the Scriptures, as well as the the centrality of the gospel, because both of these traits are actually fundamental for every biblical church. They're they're what every uh, one of the traits that we talked about in this series actually come out of. Without the word of God at our foundation or the gospel of God at our core, we cannot be a biblical church. The Bible is our supreme authority, and the gospel is what holds our community together. And so from there, we looked at a number of biblical traits. We were all over the map, kind of bringing them together into what defines what looks like a biblical church. And the most recent one we talked about was last week, the priority of community. Last week, Pastor Hannibal described God's people in three ways, a community of love and grace, a community of necessity, and a community of diversity. Marked by the love of Jesus and God's grace in the gospel, we are a family that needs one another. And that reflects the beauty of the diversity that God created us with. And so this morning, I actually want us to zero in on that last reality for our 11th of our 12 traits, that we are a community of diversity. Because this morning, I want to argue that God's people, according to the scriptures, are decidedly, emphatically, unquestionably marked by diversity. And it is good. Not by diversity as defined by our society, but as defined by God. This morning, the text that we're going to be in is Acts 2, verses 5 through 21. And so I want to invite you, as we read our text this morning, like we normally do, to stand as we read. Um, If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the cart in the back. You can also follow along behind me on the screens. And I want to ask you to do something a little bit different when we read the scriptures this morning. When we get to the last verse, I actually want us to read that verse together. So we're going to read verse 21. It's okay if you don't remember. I'll remind you when we get there. But let's listen to the words of God from Acts 2 starting at verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites... Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs—we we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they turned to one another and asked, "What what does this mean?" Some, however, made fun of them and said, they, "They've they've had too much wine." Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the, co- the crowd. Uh, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let, let me explain this to you. Listen, listen carefully to what I say. The, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning, after all. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And then let's read this verse together. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's word. You may be seated. The year was 1941, World War II was well on its way and the United States military recruitment officers found themselves in the most unlikely places to recruit soldiers, recording studios and theater dressing rooms. You see, they had orders to recruit a a special type of soldier for a special type of military outfit. Officially known as the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, the, this unexpected army was deployed not to fight, but to deceive. And that's how they earned their nickname, the Phantom Army. They used uh, inflatable tanks and pyrotechnics, camouflage and makeup artists fake radio plays and, and, and voice actors, special effects and sonic deception to pretend to be not only a different military unit, but, but a bigger military unit than they were. And they were so good at it that the, the Germans they deceived felt like they were fighting ghosts. You see, one moment the 23rd was in one place, and the next they were attacking from behind. For the Phantom Army, deception was a way of life. Unfortunately, today in churches like ours, We act more like the Phantom Army than we would like to admit, appearing like the kingdom of God when we are just playing the part, not actually living the life, inflated by an identity defined by the world rather than God, pretending to be who God says we actually are, a diverse community united in Christ. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer explains it like this in his book, Life Together. It's a longer quote, but I'll, I'll read it out for you. I'll put it up on the screen. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a, a, a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a, a great di- disillusionment with others, with, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to le- live even for a brief period in a dream world. We all come into this family with an idea of how things should work, and we try to make that dream happen But the grace of God breaks through those fantasies and leads us to true relationship, true community, true familia. And it means that we will be disillusioned, disappointed with our brothers and sisters in Christ and even ourselves because we are not the fantasy we hoped for. We are truly the kingdom of God. And God's kingdom is not a phantom army. God will not let us live in a dream world. He calls us to more. He calls us to to better. He calls us to reality, the best kind of reality, a reality that he is reshaping by his gospel, a new kind of family that is marked by the diversity that he built into humanity from the very beginning. Let me show you what I mean. You see, before we can understand what's happening in our text in Acts 2, I want to take you to a text in the very first book of the Bible, all the way back to the beginning of God's people. You see, in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, we find the the true calling of God's people, what, what his plan has been from the beginning. Look at what God says to Abram. This is the person he used to begin his people. The text says this The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Did you catch that at the end of his promises? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Part of the promise that God makes to his people is that the blessing he gives them does not end with them. It does not stop at them. It continues through them to to bless the whole world. God blesses his people so that his people can bless those who are not his people. And in that blessing, to draw them to him so that he might make them his people. Let me say that again. God God's blesses his people so that his people can bless those who are not God's people and in that blessing, draw those people to God so that God might make them into his people. The true calling of God's people is not just to be blessed but to be blessed in order to bless. Not just to to bless others that are like them, but to bless all peoples on earth. This has been the mission from the very beginning. And so if this is the calling of God's people from the very beginning, now we can get to our text in Acts 2 to see what's actually going on. Here's what I want to show you from our text this morning to invite you into, what I want to convince you of this morning from our text in Acts 2. God's people are different by design. Don't just accept it, be a part of it. What what happens in Acts 2 is not an accident, it's not random chance, it's part of the plan. Not just that, that some people might be reached with the gospel, but all kinds of people, young and old, male and female, black, brown, white, and everything in between, this is, this is something we can't just acknowledge in our heads or even just agree with in our hearts. It's something we have to participate in with our whole lives because diversity in God's kingdom is not just, not just some affirmative action program. It's, it's not just the result of a bunch of diversity training. It, it is so much bigger than that. It goes so much deeper than that. It is by design. It, it has always been by design. The problem is the sin messed with that design. And this is why God is at work, reversing what sin distorted. Because sin twists the beauty of diversity into the ugliness of division. And this is what we see all around us, isn't it? That, uh, people line up against each other based on the differences of, of, of gender or age or ethnicity or whatever other thing can divide us, uh, damaging each other because of the God-given beauty of their differences and distorting diversity into division. God's people, we, we don't avoid difference. We don't ignore how he made us. No, God's people participate in God's work to change the ugliness of division into the beauty of diversity. And let me show you how Acts 2 shows us this. Because I, I, I really believe Acts 2 is this, this snapshot of how God is doing that through three reversals. Because God is reversing what sin has distorted. These are the three reversals that I I, I point out of our text the reversal of the tower, the reversal of the garden, and the reversal of the kingdom. God is working to unite us in Christ and shine the gospel through our differences in a world changing, hard to understand, but beautiful to behold sort of way in and among his people who not only accept God's design of difference, but participate in it. Reversing the tower reversing the garden and reversing the kingdom let me start with our first reversal by looking at our text in verse 5 let me show you what i mean they were staying in jerusalem god-fearing jews from every nation under heaven and when they heard this sound a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken they were amazed they asked aren't all those people who are who are talking aren't they galileans how is it that each of us actually hears them in our own native language well, if you're not sure what's happening in this scene, let me catch you up to, to what's happening here as Luke testifies to the beginnings of the early church. Jesus has, has come back to life and has commissioned his disciples to be his witnesses in, in Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth. And before Jesus leaves, he reminds them of the promise that he made to them. He commands them to wait for that promise, to, to wait for the, the Holy Spirit to come and to empower them to be his witnesses. And Jesus ascends into heaven, and they wait. It's not long before Jesus actually makes good on his promise, and the Holy Spirit then fills every single disciple to do what Jesus commanded them to do. But, but this experience that they had was not private, and it did not stay quiet. The city was shook. A, a, a crowd started to gather to figure out what in the world was happening. A crowd of people from all nations, the text says every nation under heaven. And so as they approach ground zero, they find something they didn't expect, something that uh, confused them. That's so why the text says that they, they, they found a group of Galileans and they're a little bit perplexed about this. All right, Galileans are this uneducated group and now they're speaking multiple languages in a, in a city? Languages that represented everyone in the crowd and we're now making a scene in this city. And so as the crowd presses in, we get to some clarity as to what Luke means when he writes that every nation under heaven was represented, right? Aren't aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans, How how, how are each of us hearing them in our own native language? And so Luke starts to list everybody who was there. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, Rome, Cretans, Arabs, and yes, I practiced that a lot this week. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. What in the world does this mean? Some of them start to make fun of them because they're so confused. They've had too much to drink. People like looking in the crowd and be like, oh, I'm not sure what's happening. What's going on, though, isn't just some party trick that's happening in front of them. The mission of witness is front and center, and this is why the, the text says that they're not just talking, or just to the talk, they are declaring the wonders of God in all these different languages. And it leads some of them to ask, what in, this, what in the world could this mean? Some of them dismissing it as a party gone wrong. Half serious, half joking maybe, some of the crowd is, is too quick to look away as if something earth shattering isn't happening right before them. But as we watch in this scene, I don't want us to look away too quickly, to be deceived by appearances. You see, there's something much deeper going on in this text. I want you to notice that the text is spending most of the time explaining that the Spirit of God comes down on these men and united in their mission given by Jesus, they start living on mission for Jesus. God uses the languages of these people from all over the world to testify through his people of his wonders. Not just party tricks but wonders of his gospel. The description of who was there is not accidental. You see, if you map out that long list of hard-to-pronounce places, you actually uh, get a comprehensive, uh, east to west, north to south, even including some islands, map of the known world at the time of writing. You see, from the early days of his church, God is fulfilling the calling he gave to his people way back in Genesis 12, that they might bless all peoples on earth Through the witness of his people, but God is not just fulfilling a promise that He made in Genesis 12. Here, might I submit to you that He's also reversing the curse of sin, and I want to show you why. I call this part reversing the tower. If you want to keep your 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 place in Acts 2, you can turn back in your Bibles to Genesis 11, because I want to tell you the story of how we got all these languages in the first place. In Genesis 11, starting in verse one, the text tells us this. The whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Chapters after the garden, when God made everything right, and then a little while later, everything went wrong, we pan out and we see a world united by language. But that unity was not actually a good unity. It was a twisted unity that ended up being marked by pride and rebellion because they they start using new technology, the brick, and God's image bearers decide to, to stamp the world with their distorted image and build a tower that would reach up and touch God. So that they could be self-determining so that they could make a name for themselves captains of their souls masters of their own fate now this wasn't the first time humanity tried to climb into god's throne but this was the first time they had done it together in a concentrated effort keep reading verse 5 the lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building the Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they won't understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. Now, as you read the story, there's actually a little humor here. Because they're trying to reach God and get all uh, big and tough, and God has to come all the way down to see their tiny little tower. You see, sin not only distorts our view of God and of ourselves, it also distorts our view of reality. Objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. Sin makes us think we are bigger than we actually are, closer to being like God than we actually are. But the rebellion of Genesis 11 is not something to turn our noses at, something that can be ignored, something that can be dismissed as insignificant even. You see, God comes down and he sees in their twisted unity, and in his mercy... He disrupts their languages. He spreads them all over creation with different languages because he is effectively shutting down their rebellious project, keeping them from distorting themselves even further as they try to dethrone him and rename heaven for themselves. And the story ends with these words. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. At the tower of humanity's deception... God mercifully confuses our our languages to keep us from destroying ourselves. And at the beginning of Jesus' church, God graciously communicates in every language, uniting us, not because we speak the same language, but because we speak of and believe in the same Jesus. I want you to notice in our text in Acts 2 that God does not change back language to pre-tower of Babel days. No, he reversed the tower by taking what the tower represented, humanity united against God, and flipping it on his head. Humanity now united by God in Christ, reflecting God in all of our glorious difference. God's people are different by design because God's design of difference brings him glory because he is at work reversing the damage and distortion of sin, making everything new, starting with this, his family. And to be part of his family, like Hannibal said last week, to be part of this community, we don't need to be uniform, but we do need to be united. United in Christ, even in our differences. Because God's design of difference brings him glory. Don't just accept it. Be a part of it. The Lord is reversing the ugliness of division into the beauty of diversity. And he starts with ethnicity represented here through language, but he doesn't stop there. You see, God doesn't even stop at Genesis 11. He goes even further back all the way to the garden to reverse another difference, the sin corrupted into division. And this is our second reversal that God is going to reverse the the division that gender has caused. Look at Acts 2.14. I want you to see how God begins this reversal among his people. With people kind of snickering at the Galileans, speaking all these languages, and saying that they're uh, uh, a little too tipsy, Peter stands up and explains. All of the apostles, they stand up with him, and they, he raises his voice. He addresses the cloud, he, crowd. He says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, I, I want to explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. These people aren't drunk as you're thinking. It's only 9 in the morning. I right? remember those that are dismissing what God was doing as a party gone wrong. Peter jumps up. He explains that they're, they're seeing the beginning of a party, a celebration, but it's not what they think. Right? This isn't about pouring shots. It's about God pouring out his spirit. Look at what he says in the text. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet of Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and your daughters. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Peter goes way back into the prophets to explain what in the world is happening. And he's telling them, listen, God is keeping his promises. He is pouring out his spirit, pouring out. Like, like, like John Stott says, it's not a little splash, it's a downpour. Not just for now, but, but forever. And not just for some, but for everyone, given to all people. Let me give you a little context on this. In the Old Testament, if you read through the text, the spirit of God was given to specific people for specific purposes. Right? Prophets, priests, kings, they were given God's spirit to fulfill their God-given callings. Women like Deborah and men like Elijah were empowered and driven by the Spirit of God to speak and act on God's behalf. But the prophecy of Joel looks forward to a day when the Spirit of God would not be given just to a select few, but to all. Not just to some men and women, but to all men and women, so that all of God's people would speak and act as God's witnesses. And in doing this, God is reversing what sin did in the garden. So let me take you back to why I'm saying it like that, all the way back to the Garden in Genesis. Keep your hand in Acts 2. We'll be back here. But you can jump back to Genesis 3.16, and I want to kind of set you up with the context of what we're about to experience. Right, we, we, we stumble into the scene as God is explaining the punishment that, that the humans that have brought on all of humanity through their rebellion. You see, God made everything and everyone good, and he gave humanity everything, even himself, everything except for one thing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he commanded them not to eat from it he warned them that when they ate from it they would die and yet the humans reached out and grabbed for what was not theirs not only disobeying god but but distrusting him believing an enemy and the lies they were fed about their creator that made him look more like a monster than the friend that they had come to know But when the dust settled, it was the humans who felt a lot more like monsters, trying to hide from God and cover themselves in their nakedness. By the time God found them, they were already acting like monsters, blaming others for their rebellion. And so God, in his justice, laced with his mercy, punishes their rebellion. I say mercy precisely because of Acts 2. Because someday God would reverse these punishments. But before we see that, I want us to see a specific punishment that God gave. Right, we stumble into Genesis 3 just as God finishes with the, the monster who deceived the humans in the first place and turns to the woman he had made, the woman he loved more than he, she could ever imagine. He turns to her, and in holiness and justice he says, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Sin's distortion, sin's deception, leads to a division that will mark humanity for a millennium. The battle of the sexes, where where the the woman will desire her husband out of order and the husband will rule his wife through domination. The words in this text for for desire and rule, they actually show up in the very next chapter of Genesis in, in another scene, a scene with one of their children, Cain, a scene that's almost as chilling as the one we find ourselves in here in Genesis 3, And there God is warning Cain that sin desires to have him, but that he must rule over it. These are battle-scarred words that the Lord is using. Words that describe enemies that want to devour and dominate one another. It is the the language of of war, a a scene that plays out over and over again in the history of humanity where we, we look more like beasts trying to consume one another than image bearers trying to live out our royal callings as creatures of the king. Sin has taken a beautiful difference of gender in male and female and made it into an ugly division that devours. But now, in Acts 2, at the beginning of his church, God begins the reversal of what sin distorted in the garden. God begins to transform the relationships where men and women want to devour and dominate each other into a community where, where men and women instead receive the overwhelming generosity of God as he pours out his spirit on everyone. Where men and women speak as his witnesses. No longer face-to-face, locked in conflict, but side-by-side, led by the Spirit, witnessing to the good news of God's reversal in Christ. You see, sin does not get the last deceptive word in this story. The truth of God broke out of the grave and holds up a cross that looks like defeat, but is actually freedom marked by love. This truth that paints the people of God with the beauty of diversity, not just of ethnicity, but of gender, where both men and women are leveled at the cross in need of a Savior and empowered to witness. Different, but together for His glory. Because God's people are different by design. There is a a unique beauty in the design of God. Male and female, He created them. And it was not just good, it was very good until sin made it not good, deceived us into thinking that our maleness and femaleness was not good, distorted our view of each other, even though we bear God's image as the opposite sex. It it made us believe that we are the opposite sexes, opposed to one another. No, God has reversed that, not to destroy gender, but to put it back in its rightful place, a place of beauty and of honor, different by design, God's people don't just accept this as true. No, we are part of what God is doing in reversing the garden and the division that sin tried to cultivate between men and women. The beauty of diversity among God's people shines brightly as men and women live into who God has made us to be, how God made us to be. But God's reversals in Acts 2 don't just stop even at gender. They begin with ethnicity, they continue into gender, but the text points out one more reversal that I want to get to. There's another difference that needs correction. It's this division of generations. You see, God is also reversing the distortion of generations and age into difference designed to bring Him glory. Let me show you what I mean. This might be a little bit uh, surprising to you, but if you look back at Acts 2.17, in that same prophecy where we're just looking at, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. You catch the reversal there? Not only is the Spirit being poured out on men and women, but on young and old. The society that, that, that the early church found, finds themselves in is, is actually pretty similar to ours and also struggle with this division, right? where the old are seen as stuck in the past and the young are seen as obsessed with the future, where the old are dismissed as relics and the young are dismissed as naive, where the old are ignored and the young, well, are also ignored, let me show you a scene from Scripture to illustrate what I mean and the way that sin used this division to drive us apart. I love every chance I get to actually use Scripture to illustrate Scripture. So I'm going to go to a story, partly also because I just love stories, to show you how that happened and then bring you back to Acts 2 to show you how God reversed it. I want to bring you to 1 Kings 12. In this chapter, we, we travel with God's people to a city to install a new king, the grandson of David, the son of Solomon, this new king had big shoes to fill as he ascends the throne. And the people of God, they, they're not doing well. This is actually a rocky time for God's kingdom. And so everyone gets together to crown this new king. His name is Rehoboam. And the people, they have a request for him on day one. Don't even let him breathe. they just like, hey, we need to talk to you right away. And in 1 Kings 12.4, we get their request. Your father, King Solomon, put a heavy yoke on us. But now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, you know, give me three days. Go away for three days and then come back to me. He wants to stick it through, right? The people go away. He's asking for time to think. He wants to be a wise king, be a good king. He wants to be a powerful king. He doesn't want to be seen as weak. And so he gets together with the elders who advised his father, and he asked them what they would do. And here's their answer, 1 Kings 12, verse 7. Listen, if today... You will be a servant to these people and and serve them and give them a favorable answer. They will always be your servants. Their counsel, translated, serve these people well now and they'll serve you well in the future. It's actually pretty wise counsel for for men who have seen some things, right? Who, Who have experienced a king who enslaved his people for his pet projects and then went off the rails focused on nobody but me, myself, and I. It's wise counsel from an older generation with more experience and who have been around the block a few times. And yet the division of generations rears its ugly head even in this story. And the text paints a dark picture of the future of this kingdom. Because Rehoboam, verse 8, rejected the advice that the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. The new king rejects the counsel of an older generation. And instead of looking back at those who came before, he looks side to side at those who, who have been riding with him since childhood. The problem is here is that they don't know much more than he does. And so he asks them what to do. Here's their answer. They say, tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. This is like ancient trash talk. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Let me translate that. Railbone boys, they're sitting in the war room with him. They're scheming about what to do now that their guy is in power. And when he asks their advice, their eyes light up. And they tell him, bro, this is your chance to flex. Tell them exactly what will happen to anyone who gets in your way. This is the battle of the generations. Guess who wins? Nobody. The text explains that when the three days are up, all of Israel comes back to hear what the new king has to say. And the foolishness of the younger generation drowns out the voice of wisdom of an older generation. And the king answers the people harshly. The text says he rejects the advice given him by the elders and he follows the advice of the young men. He rejects wisdom and he follows foolishness and the entire king, kingdom then suffers for it. If you keep reading the, the history of God's people, it only goes from bad to worse. Sin distorted these generational differences and made it into a gap that eventually became a chasm, bringing with it rejection and pain and suffering and the destruction of a kingdom that had already started to show cracks. This story is an illustration of the division that sin cultivates in all of humanity across all of history. It's why Proverbs pleads with young children to listen to their parents. It's why Isaiah warns about the young rising up against the old, because sin takes the good and makes it into bad, distorting generational differences into gaps that become chasms that divide us. But instead, God paints a different picture in his family, a better picture. Proverbs 20, verse 29 says, The the glory of young men is their strength, gray hair the splendor of the old. Which effectively explains that generations contribute differently, but each generation contributes, and God's people are different by design. Don't just accept it. Be a part of it. Listen, it's, it's hard to grow old. You start to learn new muscle groups in your body, not because you've just been working out, but because they start to hurt. It's also hard to be young. You're just starting and you're really excited and you have no idea what you're doing and you just hope nobody else notices. But each stage of life that God gives us, he gives us each other for our good and his glory. We're not just a multi-ethnic community. We are a multi-generational community. Diversity is not just about ethnicity. It's about age as well. By God's grace, we we complement one another. We, We value one another. We don't reject the wise counsel of an older generation like Rehoboam. And we, we heed the warnings of Paul in 1 Timothy 4.12, not looking down on anyone just because they are young. We are a community where the older generation is not seen as stuck in the past, and the younger generation is not seen as just obsessed with the future. No, we see saints who have lived and experienced the Lord over a long period of time as a blessing. And we see saints who are incredibly excited for the new experience with the Lord as a blessing and we bless each other. No one is dismissed as a a relic or naive based on their age. Everyone is seen as loved by God, as people who have been given a gift by God for the good of his people. And, And part of that gift is the season that the Lord has placed you in. No one is ignored. Everyone matters. Everyone is for each other, and everyone has a part to play because God designed it that way for his glory and our good. That's why the prophecy of Joel says, young and old, are part of this pouring out of God's Spirit. That prophecy ends like this. It says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And like we read earlier, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Spirit of God was poured out on His people. Not just for them then, but for all of his people everywhere for all time to be his witnesses. Different languages and ethnicities, men and women, young and old. Everyone who calls on God's name will be saved, saved into a family that is marked by the beauty of diversity instead of the ugliness of division. God's people are different by design. Don't just accept it. Be a part of it. Enjoy it. Cultivate it. Reject anything that tries to reintroduce the division of sin distorted differences. See the way that God made each of of us as beautiful and reflective of his image. See in this community how God has put us together, not just across history and geography, but here and now in this particular community, and see how we reflect his beauty better together than apart. This is his design. Young and old men and women, we reflect God's future kingdom here and now. Different ethnicities, different languages, different skin colors. We glorify God when we work alongside him to reverse what sin used to divide and put the beauty of diversity on full display for all to see. So that people might see that what used to divide us can actually be united in Christ. Do you know what kind of witness it is, especially here and now, of a community of, of this many different people from different walks of life with different opinions about a bunch of different things being united in Christ? Like, this is a miracle. I, I, I need you to if you've been on any social media, this is a miracle. That God has kept us together. And God has used us to witness to his glorious reversals of what sin has tried to divide. We can together be who God made us to be, not eliminating differences, but glorifying God in all of our differences together, that we have been given to each other in our differences for our good and His glory. Would you pray with me as we continue to live into this difficult reality together? Gracious God, as we're about, we're about to sing in just a minute, we plead with you to be gracious with us, to bless us with your presence to make your face shine on us so that your glory might shine through us, to be displayed to the whole world. Would you help us not only to see, but be a part of displaying your glory through our differences, these differences that you have given us, whether it be our culture and our ethnicity, or, or the gift of our gender, or the stage and season you have put us in life. May we love and serve one another with the gifts of who you have made us to be. Would you repair what sin has destroyed, reshape what sin has distorted, May our differences be opportunities to glorify you rather than destroy one another. You've div- designed your familia with difference and we pray that you would continue to make us into a place of welcome and peace where the wars of ethnicity and gender and generation would, would end among us because of the peace you have won for us in Christ. May we reflect the diversity of our community, not like the world does, but in an upside-down, countercultural kingdom sort of way, united in Christ and yet not uniform. And yet our differences shining brightly in our church family to bring you glory and working together for the good of others. We entrust ourselves to you, Lord, because even as I talk about this, I know this is not easy work. I know this is not safe work. But I also know that this is the good work of your kingdom, bringing together what used to be at war and reshaping it with the peace of Christ. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus.